The advice and opinions expressed by the hosts of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod, and we're coming to you live from a lot of different places around Southern California this morning. So thrilled to be here with you on this Wednesday morning, because you know what Wednesday is. Whenever possible, we have Dr. Doreen Grandpichet with us. And guess what? She's here with us live right now. Good morning, Dr. Grandpichet. Uh, and, and she's frozen all of a sudden. Okay, we're going to come back to her. But uh, rem- uh, there you are. I want to remind everybody that the show is live. It's meant to be interactive. We want to hear from you. We want to know your thoughts, your feelings, your questions, your concerns. There are more ways than ever. Hi, Michelle. More ways than ever for you to connect with us. So let's talk about some of the, if you're watching us live, you might be watching us on YouTube, on Periscope, on Twitter, or on Facebook Live, or on our homepage, which is autism-live.com. And you can watch us on any of those platforms. Each one of them has a way that you can write into us. We're on a new uh, platform here that allows us from those big four, we we get the, hi, Danielle, we get your comments instantaneously from those four. Hi, Parker. Um, So we're thrilled to be able to do that, which means that our old way that was the fastest is actually the slowest. If you're watching us recorded, I want to encourage you to write in your questions. Hi, Alicia, to autism-live.com on the chat there. But if you're live watching us, uh, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Periscope are infinitely quicker right now. But look at that second column that Traven is showing you. And those are all the places that we are, in addition to that first column, that we podcast. So we are a free download on iTunes. Uh, which is fabulous. And by the way, you have your choice there. Do you want to get it with picture and sound or just sound because you're taking us on a hike or in the car? So you have your choice with iTunes and it is a free download. Uh, So subscribe, sign up uh, to get the the regular, you'll get the podcast delivered right into your inbox. Uh, And please give us a review on iTunes. We absolutely love that and helps us connect with more uh, people around the world. We are also available on Apple podcasts. I don't know why that's always so hard for me to say. It's like a mouth workout. Apple podcast. There we go. Uh, And on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Ghana. We're new on Ghana. Hi, Jeremy. And we are also now newly on Amazon Music, which check that out. That's brand new. Audible, Deezer, and a whole bunch of other places. Too many now to list on one form. But if you find that where you watch your podcast, you look and, hey, Kayla, If we're not there, please let us know because we would like to be there. So our our litmus test is if it's free to the user, we are happy to be there. And uh, hi, Rhea. 
Uh, we're so thrilled that you guys are here. And as I mentioned before, Dr. Grant, hi, Sunita. Uh, I feel like romper room. Like, you know, I can see Sunita and I can see Rhea. Um, so we're thrilled to have Dr. Grant Pichet here. She's a true expert in the field of autism. She's been working in this field for years. <laughs> you would never know to look at her how many years she's been working in this field. She's the founder of CARD and the founder of Autism Care Today. And truly, I think a visionary in this field, she's been able to see around corners for multiple, multiple decades to be able to help individuals who are on the autism spectrum and the people who love them. So Dr. Grampichet, thank you so much for being here this morning. It's such a pleasure, Shannon. Hi, everyone. Very nice to be here. We're saying hello to Nasser, who's saying hi to us from India. Uh, I want to remind everybody that we're going to be live for the next hour with Dr. Doreen. She's going to be answering your questions in real time. Uh, but we want to remind you that there is no expert in any field that could answer individually specific uh, questions in this format, right? It would be a disservice to the individuals. So what we want you to do is write in questions, be as specific as possible, and she's going to give you information, which you then take back to the people who have eyes on the situation. And uh, Tiffany is waving at us and we're waving back at Tiffany. I love this, that we can see everybody in real time. I want to um, jump in with a question. Hi, Amanda. Um, we had a couple of questions that came in before. I don't really know where to turn, but I'm at a loss for answers. My father and I both use CPAPs for sleep apnea. Me too. And lately, my 11-year-old sister has taken to destroying mine. I'm not sure what her classification on the spectrum is, but the general understanding of my family is that she, it's just how she is. Uh, and just now she's coming out of her terrible twos stage. I really don't know what to do. I tried hiding it, but she managed to pick it and find it and pick it apart. She picked apart the nose cushions five times now. And today I came into my room and found her taking a nap on my bed with the hose stretched apart until the material tore, making it impossible to even jerry-rig a solution until I can get replacements. This is the second time with the hose and now the sixth time with the nose cushions. I honestly wanted to yell at her, scream until my throat was sore because she keeps destroying the one thing that keeps me breathing at night. But I knew it would be pointless. She doesn't seem to connect us punishing her with what she did unless it happens as she does it. If I could lock my door, I would, but I'm forced to share my room with my younger brother. And frankly, he can't remember where he moved something five minutes ago, let alone remembering to lock the door. If he'd even, if, even if he'd agreed to it, um, just at my limit. And I know the next few days are going to be an irritable and sleep deprived hell until I can get my replacement parts. And even after that, I don't know how to keep her from destroying it again. Can you guys please help me? sending this sister much much love this is this is tough stuff uh what what do you think really <clears throat> yeah it really is it, it it breaks my heart to hear that you're struggling with this you know i think you need to have a sit down with your parents and they need to um hear you and help you find a closet uh, that you can put the machine in and lock it up because, um, it, you know, obviously uh, they're trying to be very understanding of the fact that your sister uh, 
is doing these uh, things to the machine. <clears throat> but at the same time, I feel like they need to also hear you. And um, sometimes it's hard for parents when they're very engaged in trying to help one child, they often will uh, unintentionally uh, not hear the requests for help from another child. So I really think that you should go back, talk to them, and explain to them that you're at your wit's end and you really need your machine and, and so on so that they can help you lock it up. Now, having said that, it, it could be that your sister sees that you have the machine and your parents have the machine and she is thinking that she would like to have her own as well. In other words, I'm, I'm not sure if she understands what the CPAP machine is for and perhaps she feels like, uh, you know, this is something that the whole, that you guys have and she wants to have her own, like she just wants to be in. So that's maybe why she's using your machine. Um, so, you know, that it, maybe if you guys have a broken machine laying around or an old one or something, maybe you could uh, give that to her so she could use her own and stop trying to come and use yours and, and accidentally destroy yours. Uh, the other alternative is is just to, you know, really find a place quickly that you can lock it up like a closet or something, because I do think that it'll take a while and, and there's no telling she might come back and destroy it again. I don't think she's doing this on purpose. You just need to know that. I think you do. And you're being very, very nice about it and very understanding about it. I think she's uh, either trying to imitate what she sees you guys doing, which it sounds like she did, or she's also interested in the spongy parts of the mask. So could be one of those things. Yeah. And, and because I use a CPAP where I feel it for you, you know, cause I know if I don't get to use my CPAP during the day, I'm, I'm like, you know, a crazy person. I, I just can't even concentrate. Right. So I feel your pain, but there are parts the like the parts you're describing that she takes apart. Those are easily detachable. In fact, they encourage you to take those parts off every day and wash them. And those aren't that big, Dr. Grand Pichet. So yeah. you can just, you can take the hose off and you can take the, with the mask part and you can, I'm sure you can find some place that is, that's secret or can be locked or whatever. Um, but, uh, but I, I, I love that you mentioned that it's, it's not with malice. She probably wants to be like you. It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you know, the first time I saw somebody who had one was my mom and I was like, what is all this contraption? It's kind of cool. Um, so yeah, uh, but, but please take care of yourself and, and I'm sending that sister love because it sounds like you have a lot of things as a sister that you have to put up with. Uh, so we are sending you love. I want to go to a question because somebody had written in the question last week and we got into uh, a thing with the chat where I wasn't able to see it. Uh, so there, they say, I'm the mom from last week. My son is five and almost nonverbal. He recently started to imitate others. I observed him imitating when not required to. It's like he can't control himself. For example, when the therapist tries to fix her hair, he would copy her action. Should I stop him from inappropriate imitating or should I just ignore that? 
So is is this the same? I can't. Unfortunately, I can't see the questions, Shannon. But is this the the same? Uh, there's another section uh, that goes on, but regardless, maybe it's another part of another question. I'm not sure. But uh, uh, what I wanted to um. Oh, I'm muted. There you, go. <laughs> you couldn't hear me. Well, I don't have. Uh, uh, sorry about that. No, no worries. I I'm not controlling it, as you know. So, um, but I'd be happy to do anything you guys want me to do if you tell me how to do it. But you're doing great. Um, but there is another part of the question. Shannon, I lost you again. Okay, why is it muted? Here, now you're back. Okay, uh, can you still hear me now? Mm -hmm. okay. Yes. So there is a boy he always sits with at school. His teacher told me he likes to copy that boy too. This makes the other boy upset with my child. If the teacher blocks my child from copying, he gets upset. So I think we have the whole picture now. Yeah, so um, I think this is, you know, imitation is a good thing, um, but it's not always a good thing so uh we need to get it under what we call get it under sd control or get it under uh your control so in other words um you should start to help your child differentiate and the way that you do that is when it's okay to imitate or when you actually want him to imitate then you will uh, precede the imitation by saying, do this. And then you will allow him to imitate or say this or whichever, whatever uh, instruction you'd like. And the rest of the time, you don't give that instruction. And so by doing this, you're teaching the child to discriminate. And so when you don't want him to imitate, let's say the child next to him or in some other circumstance, then you physically uh, block him from imitating or you give him something else to do that is incompatible. Uh, so if it's an imitation that involves, let's say, his hands, then you would give him some other activity to do with his hands. If it's a vocal imitation, then you could have him uh, sing or say his baby, something incompatible. Um, when you do want him to imitate, then you will just give him an instruction like imitate or say this or do this or something like that. So this way you're helping him understand that under certain circumstances, it's okay. Under other circumstances, it's not. Make sense? Totally makes sense. We really appreciate that. Uh, okay. We have a question about what is considered punishment. Uh, when I'm having my son practice handwriting a sentence, I erase his letters or words if it is not legible. Is that considered a form of punishment? That's a great question. And so punishment, like reinforcement, is different for different people. So uh, it's not necessarily defined by its topography or how it looks. It's defined by the results that it has. In other words, anything you do that results in a reduction of his behavior, 
anything, any stimulus that you present and that re reduces his behavior would be classified as punishing so or aversive. So it could be that erasing something is punishment for him. Um, it could be that erasing something would be reinforcing for someone else. So that's kind of how you look at it. Um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with what you're doing. I also want to say that because I know that a lot of people kind of uh, see uh, anything that's titled as punishing as being a bad thing. But the truth is sometimes that you have to have consequences. That's right. And sometimes those consequences are uh, negative. And for our kids to realize that if I do, if I write, let's say, where I'm not supposed to write, someone is going to come and erase it. It's not going to stay there. And that could be unpleasant, but nevertheless, it is a real consequence that needs to occur. Okay. And they, um, they asked, what if the, the child refuses to hold a squish ball or a fidget toy when engaging in motor stereotypic um, movement? Are the motor stereotypic movements uh, hand-based or body-based? Because if they are hand-based, there are other things you could do. For instance, you could have the child put their hands in their pocket. You could have the child sit on their hands. There are other things you can do. Um, if they're body-related, then they need to be involve the, full, the whole body. And, and here's where I just want to say, as a parent, sometimes we get upside down that, you know, we hear, oh, if your child is, um, you know, doing something, give them something, put something in their hands so that it competes with the thing. But but I want to remind everybody that and you tell us this all the time, Dr. Grampy that the behavior that they're doing, they're doing for a reason. And if we don't stop, we can't leave out the, the step where we go, what is the reason for that? So that mo whatever the motor stereotypic behavior is, some of our kids flap. They don't all flap for the same reason, you guys. Some of them flap because they see colors in, as they're doing this. Some of them flap because the movement is a way to get their emotions. It, it feels good, right? There are different aspects of it. And if you try to compete with it, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Grampichet, if you try to just blanket do something, often you you you're what you're doing won't help with the behavior. Um, so I see us a lot of times go, oh, when, and, and I'll tell you where I see it the most is when parents uh, start to learn extinction procedures and they go, oh, I'm supposed to ignore that. And then the parents generalize that I'm supposed to ignore all behavior that my child does, not just the behavior that was trying to get attention. So um, giving a child something to hold on to may not solve the function. Am I correct? No, yes, absolutely. You're correct. But it, uh, I just saw that uh, mom's uh, chat pop up. I, it's not about uh, just offering him some options and then kind of letting it go. You have to teach that behavior. You have to teach every behavior, including the replacement behavior. So whether it's holding an object or putting his hands in his pocket, you shape that up. So someone has to be present. And if the child drops, let's say, the toy you've given him, he has, you have to give it back to him. Uh, you have to increase the duration of time that he's holding the, the squoosh ball or the other, 
the the object that you've given him to block him from hand flapping. Um, and you have to reward progressively longer periods of time. So you may just give him an object, he holds it for one second, and you cheer and reward that. And But you have to continue to increase the duration of time over time. This is called shaping. It doesn't happen... It's not as easy, unfortunately, as just saying, oh, he's hand flapping. I'm going to give him an object. And from here on, he's going to stop hand flapping. Uh, so you, you need to teach that. And also, Shannon is absolutely right. You have to identify what exactly it is that you are replacing. Is it a, uh, I'll give you guys an example. We had a, I had a child who I was treating and he, one of the most difficult behaviors for him, uh, challenging for everyone, was that he would spit. And uh, it was very, very difficult. And we tried a lot of the normal interventions that we do with spitting. For example, uh, we would give him chewing gum. We would have him keep uh, increasingly reward periods of time with his mouth closed, etc. And it just wouldn't work until we realized that the, the reward, the reinforcer that he was getting out of spitting was actually visual. He liked to be able to see how his spit, the angle of the, the spit, the trajectory. So it wasn't at all having to do with the spit itself. It had to do with the visual stem. And so then we began to replace it with things like bubbles and anything that would give him that visual self-stimulation that he was seeking. So it is very important to find out the self-stimulatory aspect of the behavior so that when you're replacing the behavior, the child gets a similar reward out of it. Because remember, everything we do, we do in order to gain some sort of reward from. So. That's the key to it is, you know, find out what he's getting out of the behavior. Wonderful. And she did go on to say that it is hand and body, but only hand while sitting in a chair. She says, I've offered all of these, but sometimes he won't use any of the techniques. He says, sometimes he just needs to get his wiggles out. And I'll, and I'll tell you who that reminds me of is the story of Logan Shepard. Um, mm -hmm that um, for those of you who watch the show, you know, there's an amazing, um, he's an adult now, but he's a, a professional drummer and has been a professional drummer since he was in his early teens. But, um, you know, he was a, he was a person who, who did this and you, Dr. Grampy and, and Clark as a whole recognize that there was a need here and turned this into something really functional and he gave him some drumsticks and the kid is a professional drummer and he's a, he, I don't know if you've seen Dr. Grampy He has a video out right now. I'll, I'll find the, the link to it that um, it encourages people to vote and it's him and, and a band that he's playing with. He's on the drums and there's a, a fabulous woman singing about how now is the moment and it's interspersed with clips of Martin Luther King and saying, make your voice be heard. And it's just to get out the vote. It does not align with any party. Uh, it's a beautiful video. But a perfect example of, you know, I think it's so important that we don't just gloss over and go that behavior uh, is, is just in the way, let's get rid of it. I don't think that that takes into consideration the individual. It's one of the reasons why 
I love Dr. Grampy so much because she recognizes that these are people and that they have needs. And if he's saying he's got wiggles to get out, then he needs to, right? But, but finding a different way, but holding a koosh ball does not get your wiggles out. That's right. Right? That's right. And that's kind of why I was saying that it's, you know, uh, you need to pay attention to kind of all aspects of it. If it's a body related thing and if he needs to get his wiggles out, why don't you give him a period of time every day where he actually gets to play in the gym or work out? And, uh, you know, there's lots of different types of physical activities. Teach him dancing. Uh, there's lots of things that he can do. And, and by the way, they don't even have to be contingent on this behavior. You could periodically program them into his day so that, you know, every hour he gets five minutes of running outside. Um, and that kind of thing might actually help calm him down. Okay. Um, she just wrote in about, she said, I do sit with him most of the day during instructional time on Zoom, as well as play games with him and homework and all assignments. He frequently asks for wiggle breaks. So I let him. Uh, I said, let's have a dance party or arm wrestle, jumping jacks, but I can't be with him 10 hours a day. He does a little less movement when he's at home with his therapist because they mark it on their iPad. Uh, we yep. also have a trampoline and we jump on it a few times a day in our backyard. And I, you know, I just want to acknowledge um, what a great job mom is doing. I just, yeah. 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 Wonderful. Good for you. That's perfect what you're doing. So then the rest of the time, don't feel bad about blocking it because if he's getting plenty of opportunities, again, this goes back to discrimination it's important for our kids to discriminate when it's okay to do a certain thing and when it's not. And so by blocking him the rest of the time, like simply telling him, depending on his functioning level, making sure that he understands that he should, he is not allowed inside to do these wiggling things, but he is allowed to do it when he's on a break when he's having a dance party or when he's on the trampoline. Those are the appropriate places and times for him to do all of the movements. The rest of the time he needs to stay still. So that is something you'll have to help him discriminate. Now, I, I do wanna also, because I'm not there and I can't see him, um, you know, make sure that we're talking about self-stimulatory behaviors that he does have control over. Because sometimes I've had parents who will come to me and they consider something to be a self-stimulatory behavior and actually it's a tick. And then we're looking at other types of things like Tourette's or tick disorders. And that's very, very different. So um, as long as he has control over it, then you should teach him how to discriminate. Wonderful. And I'm so glad this parent, this other parent wrote in because we didn't get to her question uh, oh, last yes. week. My, my son is five years old, diagnosed with level two on the spectrum, global developmental delay and language disorder. He is limited verbal. When he has meltdowns, is it okay to hold him and comfort him? My husband sends him to his room. I usually will take him and hold him without speaking. Meltdowns generally occur when he is denied something he wants. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so that's a really great question. And we are going to get into the functions of behavior yet again. 
So um, I love that the parent uh, mentioned that he has a meltdown when he doesn't get something that he wants. So at this point, as you need to, the right uh, way to deal with it is to make sure that he doesn't get the thing that he just tantrums for he, under any circumstances. And ideally, you would want to just ignore the meltdown. Now, it's hard to ignore a meltdown when you tell the child to go to his room, when you hold him, especially when you hold him, you're giving him a lot of attention and love and caring, which I know as parents, we want to do that. But you don't really want to do that when he's having a meltdown, because honestly, it's when you you're rewarding him for when he has a meltdown, you're not rewarding him with the object that he was tantruming for. But you are holding, you are rewarding him uh, nevertheless, because, you know, being held and so on is not necessarily uh, negative to the child. So at this point, my recommendation would be to not hold him and not send him to his room. But if you can tolerate it, if you can both handle it, ignore him, just have it, let him have his meltdown, completely ignore him. Um, and that is very hard to do, believe me, I know. And I know, Shannon, you've had experience with this as well. But if you can ignore him, what to expect is that the meltdown might get a little bit more intense, but then if you stick with it, it will go away. And he will learn that having a meltdown is not a good way to communicate. Now, at the same time, what I want to uh, advise you is if there's a circumstance where he wants something, you know it ahead of time. You know that he's about to have a meltdown because he wants that object or he wants to get out of a situation, whatever it is, and you prompt him to vocalize what he wants, right? So you prompt him to have the appropriate response. I think, Shanna, did the parents say that it, it happens when he wants access to something? They said when he gets denied something, yes. Something, but I don't yeah. know what it is he's denied, yeah. Right, so if you, you can just model for him before he tantrums, if you can tell him, say, I want whatever it is, and he says it, and you can give it to him, Wherever that is possible, then do that, okay, so that he avoids the tantrum and learns that he can have, he can vocalize to receive the object wherever possible. Now, sometimes it's not possible to give him the object that he wants, in which case, if he tantrums, you need to completely uh, ignore it. And again, this is another circumstance where you're teaching your child discrimination, it is okay to ask for something and then you will receive it. It is not okay to have a tantrum or a meltdown. In that case, you will not receive it. So yeah, it's always about teaching our kids when something is okay and when it's not. I, I lost you there for just a second, but I just want to say um, when we talk about ignoring um, that it's, I didn't understand when therapists were first talking to me about ignoring. Um, but it, you know, I've, t I've told the story many times before, so I'm not going to tell it again here, but 
it, it doesn't mean that you are someplace where you don't have eyes on the situation. Um, when, when they did the first planned ignoring with me, I was in the room with my son, but where we have this thing where we orient to our kids, your kid is freaking out and your kid is screaming and your kid is pulling on your pant leg. And we will turn to them and say, stop that. Don't do that. That's not ignoring. Um, what they taught me was to busy myself with another activity so that I'm in the room with him. And I, you know, there's the famous story that I tell about the fact that they made me water the plants and then dust the television and clean up some mail. And I was like, what is this, a cleaning program? Um, right. But it was to get my focus. I was still in the room with him. I was still making sure that he wasn't hurting himself or, you know, property destruction that I could, if, if I saw him walking over to take a planter and toss it across the room, I got there first and moved the planter. But I didn't say to him, I'm moving this so you can't throw it. I didn't make eye contact with him and say, ha, tricked you. I got here before you. <laughs> All these things that I would have done. So, um, but what it does, what, what I think the explanation that was made for me that it's like, uh, there's a light switch on me. And that when he is behaving in a way, you know, that is appropriate and the way that we expect him to behave, the light switches on and I'm focused on him. But when he is behaving in a way like screaming or yelling or, you know, throwing things or he would swipe things off of the counter, my light switches off and I'm blocking, but I'm not giving him any of my light. My light switches off. And that that's super important to learn how to do. It does not mean you, you know, send them someplace else where you don't have eyes on them or that you can't, or that you ignore everything that they say. Only the, only if he's screaming, I'm, you know, wiping my phone off. Right. And then if he stops right. screaming and he says, mom, what are you doing? I go, oh, I'm wiping my phone. And then if he starts screaming, I go back to wiping my phone and not paying attention to what he's doing. It's hard, y'all. It is hard. Uh, and be gentle with yourself if you don't get it right the first time. But it works. They yeah. learn so quickly. Oh, she's not giving me what I want for that. So I guess I'll try something. Yeah, that was a great uh, description, Shannon. And that's really important because basically it's not at all about ignoring every behavior. We're not recommending that. You want to just ignore behaviors that are unacceptable to you. And you want to reward the behaviors that are appropriate. So any kind of conversation or request vocally uh, or anything that is appropriate, you do want to interact with and engage with. And anything that is not appropriate for you or is challenging in some way or inappropriate to the to the moment those are the behaviors that you want to ignore yeah and it's super hard you guys it goes against everything that you ever saw anybody demonstrate in terms of parenting on a tv show or in a movie or anything because and and your in-laws are going to lose their minds when you do yeah. that <laughs> like they're gonna go you need to say something to him. You need to, like, he needs to be talked to. You can't just let that go. Um, and, and in fact, it doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. work. I have to get to this question. And I know we got a bunch of live ones, but somebody had written this in ahead of time. We have to get to it. My three-year-old is having ABA for a year now. He tends to be very inattentive um, in a formal ta table chair session and tends to stim a lot, vocal and gazing. 
The BCBA has advised to put a hand on his mouth to irritate him and stop him stimming. Is this the right approach? It's been used for months now and it's not working, according to mom's viewpoint. Um, they are of the opinion that he is a difficult child to work with. I am completely confused, is what the mom said. I talk all the time, Dr. Rambichet, on, on the show about the difference between quality ABA and bad ABA. This makes me break out into hives and I want to cry for this child. Where, what do you think? Yeah, I, I wouldn't uh, put a hand on, on him or any child for any reason. Um, so I don't think that's an appropriate intervention. That is not what ABA would tell you to do. Um, what you need to be doing is identifying why he is uh, vocal stimming and <clears throat> why he is gazing. And I can tell you that each of those will have a different function. And once you've identified the function, you will then try to replace it with something that fulfills that function and is more appropriate. So um, <clears throat> you don't want to do that, basically. And, uh, you know, that's kind of where you go. I could re recommend that if you would like to find out or, or investigate a little bit more what the function of those behaviors is, we developed a really cool test many years ago. It's called the CIFA, which is the uh, CARDS Indirect Functional Analysis or Assessment. And you can find that, I believe, on our IBT or skills website, Shannon. Where is the CIFA? The CIFA is on skills. Skills. And if you go on the skillsforautism.com website and you look for CIFA, C-I-A, it's a series of questions and you answer the questions and it will help you identify the function of each of those behaviors so that uh, you can then, and it'll link you to ideas, a, a behavioral intervention uh, <clears throat> plan for each of those behaviors. And I, that takes me into my weekly announcement of what is free on card and IB, or um, excuse me, on skills and IBT. So everybody get out a pencil or a pen or your phone so that you can take down a number. I'm going to tell you what's free. And then I'm going to give you a number that you call to get free access to these trainings. Uh, this week for ABA parents, and this is directly from the, the folks at Skills Global IBT, uh, for our ABA parents and guardians, we will continue to offer free IBT parent e-learning course, uh, Parent Overcoming Challenging Behaviors. I just really want to recommend that everybody take advantage of this because it's such a great training. It's a video. You'll get free access to it. You can watch it. Your significant other can watch it. You can show it to your babysitter. You'll learn a lot and it will make things better. Parent Overcoming Challenging Behaviors. For teachers, they're continuing to offer their IBT educator learning module, Educator Starting to Teach, and that's available to teachers at no charge. They are continuing to offer their RBT, which is Registered Behavior Technician 2.0 training, free for parent audience on a case-by-case -case basis. So if you're a really motivated caregiver and you want to learn um, what therapists learn, the beginnings of what they learn. There's an online course. They'll, they'll give it to you for free. It's like a $440 
uh, value, but they'll only give it on a case-by-case basis. You have to let them know that you're serious business about it because it is a 40-hour training and they don't they don't want to give it to people who aren't going to use it. But in addition, they're continuing to offer a 10% discount on all skills products for anyone when they call the office. All you need to do is call the number I'm about to give you, say that you're an Autism Live viewer, say that Shannon sent you, ask for the friends and family discount, because that's what you are, friends and family. Ready? Here's the number, 877-975-4559. Traven, if there's any way to put that on the screen, that would be great. I'm going to say it two more times, 877-975-4559. 877-975-4559. And that will get you to Skills Global IBT. There's They have a whole bunch of things that are helpful and useful. And they're trying to offer you something free every week during COVID to help you to get through this difficult time. And we thank them for that. I'm the hugest fan of Skills and IBT. So uh, we appreciate that. Uh, okay. I... Uh, I want to get back to the questions in the chat. Give me a second here. So uh, my 10-year-old son constantly swears and it's getting worse, swearing more, especially during transitions and high stress moments. He says they're just words and mean nothing and that I, I swear uh, and that I swear it's so it's okay. Though that I swear, so it's okay. So hard for me to ignore, but when others may hear him, they think it's a lack of parenting. He's very high functioning and does not yet know about his diagnosis. Yeah, so if he's very high functioning, once again, this is an opportunity to teach discrimination. Um, You know, a lot of people swear in private or even in, uh, in, in the company of very, very close friends, but not in public. And he is 10 years old, so it, he has a set, different set of rules, I guess, than you do. Um, so I, I have a number of different suggestions. One is you need to stop swearing in front of him. <laughs> so for the time being, I know that's hard. <laughs> Shannon's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but just for the time being. And the second thing is, there's a number of things you have to do. Um, you can, First of all, if he's very high functioning, I think it would be important for him to see or realize, um, and it's up to you how you uh, make him see this, that others disapprove of this. Uh, so in other words, other kids his age may not want to play with him or other teachers might think poorly of him or when others see him swearing, they will not like that. Now, um, you could set this, I, I don't know what his rewards are. Like some kids are very interested in making other kids like them. Other kids don't really care about that. It depends on what's important to him. But uh, there is a lesson that we do called Circle of Friends And what you do is you basically will teach him that, you know, it's okay if you swear in front of us. So it shows you levels of friendship, right? So it shows you family, like the smaller family unit, and then larger family, and then friends, and then acquaintances, and then so on and so forth. And you show show him those concentric 
circles and you give him a list of things that are okay to do or not to do for each group. So it might be okay for him to swear. It really depends on your rules, your fa family rules. If you think that it's okay for him to swear around you, then that'll be the only circle that it's allowed. Around other circles, it's not allowed. And this is kind of like you give him a list of other things that are allowed. But this is one of those situations where in order to teach him the discrimination, you have to reward or not reward a certain behavior, right? So if he, and the behavior you're trying to get rid of is swearing. So reward the absence of swearing. And what you will do that uh, with time. So let's say right now, get a baseline and figure out how often he's swearing. Once every hour, once every 10 minutes, whatever it is, establish that on an average and start to reward longer and longer periods. Just tell him if he's very high functioning, say, this is amazing. You haven't said a bad word in 10 minutes. I'm so proud of you. This is fantastic. Um, if it's, you know, give him rewards, give him a chart perhaps that shows him he'll get another reward in 10 minutes. Uh, give him a timer on his phone. But whatever visual you need to use to help him understand that the longer he cannot swear, he will get a significant reward. And it's got to be something that's meaningful to him. And make that visual so he knows it's coming for, for sure. And, and then, as I said, if there are any environments where you allow it, then obviously there he can get away with it. But in other circumstances, he needs not to swear and you're going to reward the absence of swearing. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, of course, I have my two cents here, but my two cents is very dysfunctional. And I'm just going to throw that out there first, because, um, you know, I other people have hobbies. Um, I swear. I, I know that, like, I hope that you guys don't realize this watching the show, because I can compartmentalize just exactly what Dr. Grand Pichet was saying that most of the time I'm capable of, you know, inhibiting. Um, I mean, I, I used to teach at uh, BYU. I was a college professor at BYU. I was not a Mormon, but I was teaching there and had to sign a morals clause. I, you know, I couldn't even swear in my regular life and I'm capable of turning it on and off. But I, when I have, my moment and I talk, I swear like a Russian sailor uh, and I enjoy it. It is pleasurable to say words that have percussive sounds. So, and most people, when they have children, you know, you keep, and you like to swear, you keep swearing and then your child mimics you and you go, oh, I better stop that. Right. Well, that wasn't the case with my child because my child stopped speaking. So at, which made me mad, which made me swear all the more. Yeah. So, um, and I wasn't inhibiting my response. And when we started ABA, my team had to come to me at one point and go, we have a little bit of a problem here. Because your child, my child, he, did, he didn't have good enough um, diction so that people could understand what he was saying. But the more you were around him, the more they realized um, he is throwing some words down that are, are going to get him in trouble in school. That's so. Fine. 
Yeah. Well, the first full sentence he said had that on his own, completely unsolicited, had the F word in it. And and I, of course, was like, because I know for sure we didn't uh, DTT that uh, that was he picked that up. Right. And I have a sense of humor about it. I have friends that are shocked because they they have never seen me be in my swearing mode. But we put limits on it and said, we, we only swear when we're in the car and nobody else is there, or we swear when we are home and nobody else is there. But I got to tell you, my son is 17 years old. And I, I think, you know, I hear him when he plays his video games with his friends and it is a swear festival and it is not just him. And another, I said to another parent, I'm, I'm so appalled and embarrassed. And, and that parent said, no, that's how they're working their yayas out. Our kids are not out, you know, doing things that can get them arrested. Let on the the spectrum of behaviors, you know, they got to have some way of expressing themselves. We'll just keep shoring up. You only do it when you're with these friends. And he knows I, when I'm with this friend, this friend doesn't swear and his mom doesn't let him swear. So I don't swear. So I agree completely with Dr. Grampuche. And now you can all judge me, but I do love to drop uh I get compared to Beverly Goldberg all the time. Do you ever watch the Goldbergs, Dr. Grampiche? Yeah. Um, yes. The, every show, Bev, we laugh hysterically. Bever, Beverly Goldberg, they have to bleep her on the show and they they point at me and laugh. Uh, I know you all thought that I was such a good little nun and now you know differently. Uh, okay, the chat continues. Let me take a look at what everything that you guys have been write, writing here. Uh, we do have somebody who's writing in a question and want, wants to know your opinion about if uh, if a person with a diagnosis should be able to be suspended from school. Uh, so in your professional opinion, should a child on the autism spectrum be subject to suspension given the fact that they have been deemed by a speech therapist medically to have a deficit? for not being able to effectively communicate their wants and needs. Um, and I, you know, um, I think if Bonnie were here, Bonnie would say, uh, and we, Bonnie has talked about this, Bonnie Yates, a uh, special education attorney who's a regular on Mondays, you know, uh, there are very specific laws about this, right? But, uh, but it depends on what the child did. Yeah. And it, and it depends on, on what was done to assist and support the child. Yes. So, you know, bottom line is um, the, in terms of school, the school is responsible for your child's safety, but also for the safety of everyone else at school. So um, they're, they are supposed to uh, give your child enough support, both physically and uh, with an aid and with an IEP in place and with a behavior intervention plan in place and with accommodations and modifications so that your child doesn't end up doing something that is difficult, challenging or dangerous to himself or to others. So bottom line, if the school did all of that right um, and your child did something that could potentially be dangerous to others, then yes, I would say they have no other alternative but to suspend. However, in most cases, <clears throat> the school 
unfortunately, either due to lack of knowledge or lack of resources, uh, doesn't do everything that they're supposed to do to accommodate and support and help and guide and teach uh, our kids. And so as a result, our kids tend to use challenging behaviors to communicate what they want in a, instead of uh, appropriate behaviors. And then they get into trouble and then they get suspended. And that is not okay uh, because to begin with, the school didn't do what they were supposed to do to handle it and to teach your child. So it, dif it differs, right? It has to do with, did they actually do everything they could to support your child to begin with or not? And also what was the behavior Shannon said? You know, it's one thing to, um, I don't know, uh, throw a pen. Um, it's another thing to throw a chair. So it kind of, it, it depends. And, and again, even if your child threw a chair, did it, was it something that the school knew would happen? Did they give your child an aid for him to, to be able to stand right behind the, ch the child, help him? Did all those things occur? And usually the answer, unfortunately, is no. A lot of the antecedent control, the stuff that we should do ahead of the behavior doesn't happen and children have meltdowns. Yeah, I I get really um, mad when we talk about suspensions because I don't I don't believe in the whole uh, suspension policy anyway because we know a lot of times kids are I know being an ex classroom teacher a lot of times kids will act out in class in order to be sent out of class absolutely and when they get older they they yeah. act out more so that they can be sent out of school. If, yeah. if every time I act out, you send me home so I can sit and watch cartoons at home, yeah. I learn very quickly, I'll just do that and then I get 10 days at home. So I have right. problems with all of that to begin with. But I will tell you, uh, this mom is writing in and say um, they did not have behavior support. Yeah. Uh, despite having one year prior, he, uh, the one year prior, the oh, and then it went away, uh, the return to, to the brick and mortar. So here's no, what I want. Sorry, okay. sorry, Shannon, but I, I want to say oftentimes when something like that happens, we should realize that that is not the right setting for your child. Right. And we need to find a different setting where they can actually manage the behavior through antecedent control. And they can't just repeatedly send him home. They, you need an IEP. Yeah, you probably need you yeah. probably need a lawyer. And I'm happy to talk with you offline uh, about where you can find all of those things. Uh, I want to get to a couple of quick questions because uh, they're they're asking again. Hi, Dr. Doreen. My 10-year-old son has been taking his thumbs and tucking them into his fists. Have you ever seen anything like this? What could be the reason that he does this? No, I haven't seen that particular behavior. But I mean, as long as it's not interfering with other activities or behaviors, I would leave it alone for now, to be honest with you. It could just be a sensory uh, stimulation or, or, you know, experience that he's having. It could be a safety type of thing. A lot of times our kids do things that make them feel less anxious. Um, I, <clears throat> I haven't seen it. I wouldn't necessarily mess with it because it's not harmful to him in any other way, unless it is, in which case you should let us know. 
Yeah. Okay. And I want to get to a question about toe walking that we had from last week too. This is a twin sister of someone who has a diagnosis. She does not. She's five, has ADHD and global developmental delay and language disorder, but not enough autism symptoms to be, to get a diagnosis. She walks on the balls of her feet probably 70% of the time. She's very sensitive to shoes and socks. They must uh, be and feel perfect or she will not wear. She walks this way barefoot, socks, or with shoes. Could I, I would recommend that you see someone else uh, for a diagnosis. I think that would be kind of important to do because those did not sound like ADHD symptoms. Um, I'd wanna make sure that you get a second opinion on diagnosis first. Okay. All right, um, and then let us know how that goes. We are uh, just about out of time, but I wanna take a second to, we had two questions that came in about food. One from a 26 year old who identifies themselves as being on the spectrum and vegetarian, and all they eat is white food and they just never learned how to eat regular food and they're concerned. Um, I know you have a lot to say about that, but I also wanna encourage them to watch, we've had, an adult on the spectrum who's a vegan who has a cookbook out. Her name is Anita Lesko. And I would I would look to see the interview that we did with Anita Lesko. I think that you're gonna find some great answers there. And in addition to this, we also had a question about someone trying to get their 15 year old son to try new foods. I know that the food thing is uh, very much something that you're um, very knowledgeable on Dr. Grampuche, and it's a passion of yours to talk about good nutrition for folks on the spectrum. You've got a minute and a half. Anything you want to say? Sure. I mean, there are a lot of uh, good uh, cookbooks out there. My daughter is actually both gluten-free and vegan, so I know that there are really good uh, uh, cookbooks out there. But I'm wondering if in this case, uh, the issue is not the food, but perhaps the color or texture, uh, which a lot of times our kids become very selective based on color and texture, which I think is a very interesting thing that happens. Um, And what you need to do is you need to shape uh, the behavior and reward progressively more different foods. So you might, if it's color, for instance, um, you might uh, alter the color very gradually and go from, let's say, white to beige to gray foods to then darker foods or green or whatever foods. If it's texture, what we do is we begin with very, very small amounts of something that you can chew and then gradually increase that or gradually decrease that because there's some kids who like chewable foods and others who will never chew anything and they like mushy foods. So it's a shaping procedure. And like everything else in shaping, it's gradual reinforcement of slightly altered uh, foods so that you can eventually get to the points that you want. Thank you. And I, and I just want to say too, for the 26 year old who is vegetarian and they talk about how they can't bear to eat onions, that they, there's like a feeling in their mouth that they just don't, you know, sometimes I have a very dear friend who has an allergy to onions and garlic. And when she eats them, she is not on the spectrum, but when she eats them, it starts with a tingling and then it burns. And then if she eats a lot of it, her tongue swells. 
So, um, you know, don't discount that, you know, if, if something physically doesn't feel well, there are people who have allergies. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you for saying that because I feel the same way, Shannon. I personally, I don't eat onions. I eat garlic, but I cannot eat onions because they actually make my stomach hurt. I get bloated from them. So I would say the same thing. If it's something that's not absolutely necessary, and if it's one item, leave it alone. I mean, there are kids who will not eat a whole array of things, in which case we have to be selective and try to teach them. But you can get allergy testing ahead of time to identify the things that they're allergic to. There we go. We are so out of time. But Dr. Grampichet, I just adore you. And I appreciate taking this time with you. And I just, I learned so much. And it's so fun to be with all these folks. I know we didn't get to all the questions and comments, you guys. I hope you see that we're doing the best that we can. Uh, but we will continue on. Tomorrow, we are back here uh, live with the show. And we have a wonderful mom blogger. Uh, Kirsten Hunter is going to be here with us. Uh, she writes the blog behind his eyes. And so we've got a big show planned for you. And I'm even going to bring Anita Lesko's cookbook in because I think there's, it's time to change our food again, Dr. Grampichet. It's seasonally. We all, we all need to change the colors and the types of food that we're eating because we everybody's writing in saying, you know, food has gotten boring. So we're going to talk about that a little bit tomorrow too. And then don't forget on Friday, Leah Hirschfeld is coming. You guys asked for more research about genetics and autism and what's, what, what does the, the world of research say about that? And she's got a whole presentation about genetics and autism on Friday during Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. That's all the time that we have today, but we love you. We will see you tomorrow. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now. 